0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Hello, Tim. Shalom. Shalom Lacha. How are you this fine evening? I'm doing well. It's December... It was december last week too
1: happy december
0: yes which december is we're right in the middle of the holiday season i'm gonna ask you a question oh boy this is unscripted
1: of course is it ever
0: a lot of times it's unscripted at what point is it appropriate as a warm-blooded american to play christmas music on the calendar year
1: uh we uh usually wait until after Thanksgiving, but uh Thanksgiving's kind of late in the American calendar. So, uh, if people want to do it a little before, I I don't have a problem with that after Halloween. So, usually for us it's after Thanksgiving.
0: I'm a I'm <clears throat> a staunch we we don't we don't do any jingle bells, we don't do any Santa, we don't do any anything plus <laughs> until after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Now it can be like Right after Thanksgiving. Yeah, we so usually like,
1: set up right after Thanksgiving. Put the leftovers in the fridge
0: yep. and let's bust it out. Mm-hmm. But before that, no, no, can't handle that.
1: I really like Christmas music.
0: i So here's the other day, I was on Spotify, not a sponsor, by the way. And in case you were wondering if Spotify was a financial supporter of the Thinklings podcast, uh, they love Joe Rogan. They don't love the Thinklings as much. But, uh, I I was like I want a Christmas playlist, and what I noticed is most of the really popular Christmas playlists are almost no Christiany Christmas songs. It's all the like when Santa Claus comes to town and jingle all the way junk, and mm-hmm. I was a little you know I was a little discouraged.
1: Yeah, I really like Christmas music in our children's program. That's the four years old to sixth grade. For the closing program one night, I usually do a little challenge. But um, I canceled the challenge, and I told the kids to learn a song and to play it on an instrument. So we had a few kids play piano, uh, violin, uh, just uh, various instruments, and then we sang a bunch of songs. And I think the kids really loved it. Uh, Christmas carols. And, um, yeah, I, I really like Christmas music. Talked to, talked to them about minor keys, because a lot of Christmas carols are in, the mi- are in minor keys. Mm. So it was a good time, and, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, we, we just had a Christmas cantata at Maranatha, and uh, there's, there's some songs that uh, have struck me in new ways, like, um, you know, kind of one that was kind of always kind of meh to me, you Know away in a manger and uh just, just really thinking about the incarnation mm-hmm. and uh just the the glory and the beauty of God being born. Uh, that that was there's a couple of songs that really hit on that in our program, and uh, that was just you know impactful to me. But anyway, if you're wondering, listener, what did that have to do with what we're doing in this episode? Almost nothing. Uh, other than we are going to talk about Christ. But,
1: but we fellowship and
0: yeah. thinklings
1: talk. Good and thoughts. So it's good. good thoughts.
0: There's no greater thought than don't play your Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Sure. So uh, here's what's in the rest of the episode that we actually planned to talk about. We are going to return to some Andy's weekly wisdom. I uh, quote from Sir Teange. We're going to have some listener emails to tend to, so we're going to mention a couple of things there, maybe some forecast for later on in the spring. We are going to do that thing we always do, talk about the books and business that we've been up to. And then the main topic of our episode is we're going to start exploring the Christological Old Testament quotations in Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, that is going to be fun. So. First things first, Andy's Weekly Wisdom, this is in Sertéage, the chapter titled, uh, let me make sure I get the right title, The Time of Work. So he's talked a lot about you know always being an intellectual, uh, the continuity of work is section one here, then the work of night, so like what, um, what is supposed to go on at night, which really his big plug is like, you should be getting ready to go to bed so you can be productive tomorrow which is very smart. Uh, This quote is in the section mornings and evenings. So again, how do you use these times of day the best? And I really like the sentiment that he shared in the first two paragraphs under that subheading. So mornings and evenings. And here I'm just gonna read, um, let's, uh, I'll just read one paragraph. Hence the extreme importance for the worker as well as for the religious man Of the mornings and evenings. One cannot prepare, supervise, and end the hours of rest with an attentive spirit if those that immediately precede and follow are left to chance. So, what is he saying? So, what follows the hours of rest? One cannot prepare, supervise, and end the hours of rest. So, the night. Right. You can't do that. Attentive, attentively, if what immediately precedes and follow are left to chance. And so, uh, what is he saying here? You have to have a plan of how you're going to wake up, how you're going to get ready to start your day, how you, you have to have a plan of how are you going to go to bed and how are you going to be done at the end of a day? It's like, who cares if you get the best night's sleep, if you have no plan for the rest of it. Um, and he, he develops that a little bit uh, by the very next line. He says, the morning is sacred. And I don't know if this is true of you, Tim. The, the older I get, the more I'm realizing this, that my evenings are not as good as they used to be, where you know the later I stay up, the harder it is for me to really concentrate. But if I have a good night's sleep and I wake up and I'm ready to go, you know, eat your breakfast, eat your Wheaties, you know, take a shower, get a cup of coffee. Some of those clear morning hours are some of the best hours I have. Uh, and so that that's kind of his sentiment there. And and just I liked, you know, you can't leave it up to chance. Yeah. And he he's made a plug a couple of times in the book that if you really want to pursue the intellectual life, have have a life of the mind, you should be devoting two hours a day to that. So break that down quite simply an hour in the morning and an hour at night
1: or two hours in the morning
0: or two hours in the morning. And what does it take for you to plan that in and build that into your day? And each one of us has a different schedule to accommodate that, but you can't leave that up to chance. And I just, I thought that was a great sentiment there. So it's, it's good wisdom from, uh, I think, I think Andy would love, yeah, he's an
1: early morning guy too. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: I I think some of the best things I do is when I can get to the coffee shop, when it has opened like early and the first hour there is some of the best work. Um, Anyway, so that's Andy's weekly wisdom. Moving on to some listener emails. So I'm just going to kind of give a overview of some things that have been sent to us that we're planning to address in the future and then tim is going to specifically address one of those Mm
1: -hmm. and so
0: the first one i have here is brianna uh you emailed in and you asked us a question let's see where's my email inbox yes brianna you had emailed in and wanting to talk about the topic of predestination and uh uh, we will address that hopefully at a later time. I just wanted to give Brianna and then Elsie a shout out, a couple of friends from camp last summer. I absolutely remember who you guys are and I hope you're uh, finding time to get together and read good books together. And even better, if you would uh, take a picture of your little group and tag us online, we'll share it. That'd That's be awesome. wonderful. Um, but we are going to plan to, um, talk about that in the future, Brianna. Uh, Tiffany, you did ask us a question about the Lord's table, and we are planning to come back to that, just doing a little bit more preparation there. And then Decker, you've sent us a couple of good emails, Uh, one about uh, tribulation, or no, not tribulation, rapture views, and uh, so we're going to plan to address that. And then hopefully we get Thinkling Stearns back in the fold. Mm-hmm. And he, when he does come back, he will instruct us all again on why the Narnia book should be read in publication order, which was a question that Decker sent in, which is a great question. Uh, so, was that all the ones that I was supposed to? Yeah,
1: and then I had Brian Collins.
0: Yes. Oh, and we did, we did have an anonymous email about... Uh, divorce, divorce. talking about Mm -hmm. divorce and remarriage. And so that's another one that we're going to try to review and and prepare a little bit more for. But some of those ideas we might be addressing over the coming months. And so thank you all who are emailing us and um, yeah. And then Brian Collins.
1: So Brian uh, was giving some feedback, some some uh, additional information concerning the fear of the Lord. Uh, Dan Wertz had messaged us uh, about resources on the fear of the Lord, and I highlighted an article by Bruce Walkey, uh, "The Fear of the Lord: The Foundation for a Relationship with God," and the article can be found found in Alive to God Studies and Spiritualities presented to James Houston. And I mentioned how the book is rather difficult to acquire. Brian mentioned that the article's been reprinted in the book, The Dance Between God and Humanity, which is a collection of articles, essays by uh, Bruce Wolke. So if you're struggling to get alive to God, you could pursue The Dance Between God and Humanity, and you can find that article in there. And then um, we are also talking about some commentaries about... uh, Lao's commentary in NICOT on Ruth. And um, Brian has actually written uh, a book review of this in the Journal for Ministry and Theology. Um, which is a publication by Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, where I got my, my uh, PhD. Uh, and he uh, thought it really made a contribution to Ruth commentaries and scholarship. So I uh, appreciate that feedback. I was liking the commentary as well, and he's done a lot more work in it and, and recommended it. Then secondly, um, there was a new commentary also in the NICOT that's, anyway, it's on part of the Minor Prophets, and the author is Nagalski. I mentioned it, saying uh, there was a new commentary, and um, he didn't like it that much. He said they're doing too much editing to the Minor Prophets, so um, anyway, it was not his, his preferred. So he kind of shared a books in business, and I wanted to just kind of pass that on to our listeners, and thanks for writing in, Brian. Uh, we appreciate that.
0: All right, and after that great listener feedback, we have some business to tend to.
1: Books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books, and uh, I've got a couple of things here to mention. Uh, Obviously, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews later, and so I have a good commentary and I have a naughty commentary to mention. Uh, the good commentary, they're both great commentaries, but there's a sad story to one of them. Uh, so the epistle to the Hebrews by Homer Kent, uh, fun fact, we've had, uh, uh, Dr. Doug Brown on our podcast previously, and he had Kent as a professor at Trinity. And I believe it was at Trinity maybe. And, uh, so he had always recommended him well. And then, uh, I think that it's a nice, short, easy read Hebrews commentary.
1: It's good too. There's a lot of quality content in it.
0: Yeah. I, I really appreciate him. And then the other one that I've been reading is actually, uh, you probably won't be able to find it. It's because it's the, uh, PNTC pillar, new Testament commentary on Hebrews by Peter O'Brien, who, uh, had a couple of his commentaries recalled due to plagiarism. And, uh, I was one of the lucky ducks who purchased a hard copy of it prior to that announcement. And uh, ironically enough, I think I was in a class with Dr. Doug when the announcement got made by Erdman's and we like stopped class. It was like a big momentous occasion. Like I was like, did you hear about Peter O'Brien? He's like, no, what happened? It was a f- yeah fun seminary moment. But, so I've been reading through those commentaries, uh, as well as uh, there's a book by D.A. Carson titled The New Testament's Use of the Old Testament, which it tells you exactly what it does. It's going to go through the New Testament, and when an author either quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, they examine that usage. So where are they quoting from? Is it Masoretic? Is it Septuagint? What's the purpose of it? What are the textual issues, all that? So it's kind of a more nuanced commentary, but those are some things uh, I've been reading there. And then maybe on a future episode, I read a little tiny book called Christmas Uncut, what really happened and why it really matters. And uh, something that we had at our church that uh, they were giving us and uh, read it and have some thoughts on that maybe for another episode. But that's what I'm working on. Andy's book, Glad... Unmute yourself, you heathen.
1: My bad. (laughs) (laughs) So Andy has an article uh, that was released in uh, a little book called Glad You Asked, and the book is actually about Christmas. So we've picked these up in the bookstore if you want to check out Andy's article. Uh, The article... Andy's article is, Is Christmas a Pagan Holiday? He actually shared some of that comment uh, content on a previous podcast episode. It's now gone into print, and there are several other articles on uh, in that book. Uh, the book that I'm going to talk about is what I've been working through recently, There Really Is a Difference, by Reynolds Showers. It's a comparison between covenantal and dispensational theology. Uh, so I'm filling in for Andy in his Intro to Bible Study class. This is a textbook for that class, and uh, it's just kind of surprising to me how many of the young people in our churches don't know what dispensationalism is. This became, I don't know, something I've thought about even more. Yeah, we had a conversation at my house this fall. Uh, the I th- We were playing some kind of game. I think it was like things that you don't know anything about, and people had to write things down that they didn't know. <laughs> Somebody wrote dispensationalism.
0: That is fantastic.
1: (laughs) Yes. And so they're going around guessing who put what down and guess who put down dispensationalism.
0: Was it a student?
1: My oldest son. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which shouldn't surprise me because guess what? I have not taught them dispensationalism. I haven't taught them dispensationalism. You know, when we learn something, we have to remember that this next generation, they don't know anything about it, unless we've actually taught them, they don't know.
0: And to be fair, and th- this is this is an anecdotal piece of evidence from a couple of Bible classes, is that a lot of students do know what dispensationalism is. In principle, they just don't know what it's called and why it's called that. So like some of the main tenets of dispensationalism, students would like, oh yeah, I do believe that, but they don't maybe understand all of its nuance and ramification.
1: Yeah, and so... Uh, or its name. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else put hermeneutics. and Ding, ding, ding. It's the same type of a thing because <laughs> we, we use these terms, we throw them around. It just helped me to realize too, I need to not... I make a lot of assumptions, but um, dispensational theology is a particular way of god's administering his rule over the world and how the the old testament administration of how god ruled over the world was is different than the new testament administration of how god ruled over the world so if you think through the old testament dispensation the new testament dispensation that gives you just a broad stroke of what dispensationalism is now that's very simplistic of course a lot of people ascribe to like seven different dispensations because the old testament law doesn't come until exodus 19. so what was going on in exodus 18 and beforehand a different administration how god was ruling through the world and that was called the dispensation of promise. And before that, you had even different ones. And there's some discussion concerning how many dispensations there are. And I don't really get worked up about that. I don't care if you think there's seven or eight or five or whatever. And, and that's not one of the main components of dispensationalism. What is one of the main components of dispensationalism, or the main component?
0: I, I would say the primary tenet mm-hmm. is that scripturally, the church... And Israel are not the same group.
1: Right. And so I would contend the same thing as well. There's a distinction between Israel and the church. And while that may seem like, oh, well, of course, there's a difference between Israel and the church. Well, the point is that the church is not the new Israel. The church is not the true Israel. And so um, I've been reading through, you know, Showers' book. Um, there really is a difference. And if you're like, man, I don't really know this whole dispensationalism thing very well, this would be a good book for you to pick up. Uh, you can just kind of blast through even the first few chapters, if you want to just get uh, uh, um, a rudimentary understanding of dispensationalism. It does matter because how you interpret a lot of the Bible uh, will change. If you believe in amillennialism or some form of covenant theology, some kind of idea that the church is the new Israel or the true Israel, and that ethnic Israel is no longer a, um, uh, a part of God's plan for the world, then that's going to affect a lot of your interpretation of a lot of the Bible. So that's why it's important. And there really is a difference. Reynolds
0: Showers. Yeah, and we, we've had questions and this, man, this is a deep take here. Okay. But we, we've had questions emailed to us way back in the day, you know, to, to the extent of, and I don't honestly remember exactly the content or content, the context of them, but something along the lines of, well, why does it matter if this author meant this thing when he wrote this book? If, if we found a new meaning in it today, why, why can we not? say it means this now, you know, and I, I believe the context was something in like a Lewis or Tolkien realm. It wasn't scripture, but, uh, Lewis's response to a question like that is that we have an ethic as an academic person to understand and speak about someone fairly and equitably. So to take someone's words and suppose that they mean something that they didn't mean is actually unethical and that is sort of just a, a synopsis of the dispensational issue when it comes to interpreting scripture, that you become, I don't know what the right word for it is, because I, I want to be fair to, uh, I have friends that are covenant theologians, but and I don't want to pigeonhole them in this way, but uh, they almost become lackadaisical in their approach to scripture, that they're willing in the Old Testament primarily to reinterpret things. And to say that certain passages mean things, when I would be quite skeptical that a Hebrew reading that originally would have known that. And, that. and that comes to issues of, well, can a passage mean something it didn't originally mean? And can a passage mean something that the author didn't know that it meant? And, you know, well, there's two authors. So if God's the author of scripture too, can't there be hidden meanings and there are some really tricky hermeneutical hoops that they're jumping through there. Yep. And it kind of falls back into that category of, uh, well, is there a problem with us interpreting a text to mean something that the original author couldn't have meant? And uh, we won't go any, any further into it, but that, that becomes a, a distinctly unique dispensational covenant uh, problem. Eh, not a problem. Uh, you know, something that needs solved in, in your thinking. Anyway, let's abandon that and let's talk about <laughs> Hebrews. It's actually do that. there are some hermeneutical it's issues here too.
1: One of the biggest books that has a bunch of them.
0: Yes, it does. Uh so give me one moment, listener. I'm gonna pull up my notes here, and uh that will help us not stray too far from the path. So We've mentioned some things from Hebrews in previous weeks and months, and it was kind of scattered ideas. And I'll give you just the origins of this. A couple of guys from my church, we decided to start getting together. It's like, hey, what what, what should we do? Uh, whenever you participate in some type of discipleship relationship with someone, uh, I just encourage you that it pr- probably should have something to do with the Word of God in some capacity. You should probably pray in some capacity. And then if you want to do some other nonsense, like talk about books, you know, that's great too. Um, But so as we were talking about what scripture should we look at, we're like, let's look at Hebrews. And so that's kind of the origin of why I started spending some time here. And uh, I want to focus some attention specifically in chapter one on the Old Testament quotations that are used and then why and how they're being used by the author of Hebrews to make the point he's making. So, uh, that was my introduction. Now, let's give a little bit of background to the book of Hebrews. So, it's being written to struggling Hebrew Christians who are becoming convinced that returning to Judaism might be the way to go. They're pondering that they never suffered as a Jew like they are suffering as a Christian, and perhaps if they were to go back to the old ways hence abandon Christ in this new message, that they would then uh, escape some of the suffering that they've encountered. And so that's what they're sort of being tempted with, is to return to Judaism rather than this new way of Christianity. And the writer of Hebrews is addressing that. And uh, he's succinctly answering that by saying, Jesus is way better. He is way better than your prophets. He's way better than the angels. He's way better than Moses. He's way better than your old temple and all of its sacrifices. And uh, we might eventually make it, you know, way down the road into, you know, the heart of the book, which is like eight, nine. Uh, but that's that's how the book opens, is that Jesus is better. The opening verses show us that he's better as a revelation to us than the prophets of old. It says this, God has in these last times spoken to us through his son. And he used to speak through the prophets, but now we've been given a revelation that's the son. And then the rest of chapter one is he starts building this argument about why Jesus is better than angels. A quick side thought here. It's maybe not something you've ever pondered. Have you ever thought, hmm, Is Jesus better than the angels? Probably not, unless you've read the book of Hebrews. So why are they thinking this? Why would the recipient of the epistle to the Hebrews be thinking about Jesus' relationship to angels? And here's sort of the flow of thought. Angels are a magnificent creation, and from an external physical standpoint, humans do not seem... To be better than angels. In fact, angels seem much more glorious. However, man was given the image of God, which is likely related to the dominion that Adam and the race as a whole was to have over the earth. Jesus, as the second Adam, is uh, anticipating, or maybe we shouldn't even say Jesus, we should say the Messiah, as that second Adam will perfectly embody and restore this image as the perfect king. However, how could Jesus, if he really was better, become a human? And so you could see that this would be a contention that the doubting Jewish believers could be thinking about. is Well, if Jesus really is better, why was he incarnate? And that brings us right to Christmas, right? Because that's little baby boy in the manger. So how could that little baby asleep on the hay really be better than the archangels or the cherubim or the seraphim? And so that's the question that is uh, the substance of doubt, most likely. So the writer of Hebrews is helping them answer that contention. And the way he does it, Tim, is by doing what?
1: Quoting Old Testament passages. He
0: goes to his Old Testament, which you know, rightfully so wasn't Old Testament at the time. It was just the Testament. I don't know, you know, the Torah, uh, most of his quotations that he's going to employ here. Uh, I believe most of them are Psalms. Um, maybe you, there's one controversial one that we're not really sure where it's at, but that's quote three. We're not going to talk about that one today. Uh, so if you remember, there's a previous episode where we talked about, there were seven descriptions of Christ in these opening verses. And uh, I don't know if this was specific or not, but we now have seven Old Testament quotations about Jesus. And so this episode, we're going to look at the first two, which is Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, and they're coupled together because they're making the same point. We'll look at the other five in subsequent episodes. So as we come uh, to these passages and this time of year when we celebrate Jesus' incarnation, the birth of Jesus, Christmas, these verses help remind us of the amazing miracle of the birth of God as a full human and yet fully God. Uh, I just sang at church, and we're going to come back to this later, just uh, yesterday, veiled in flesh. The Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. So, what do these two passages quoted in Hebrews 1 teach us about Jesus? And so, now we have to go to our Bibles. So, Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, we're going to start reading in verse 3 and kind of catch it running through uh, our two quotations in verse 5. So, verse 3. before we get to the quotations in verse 5, Tim, I'm doing, I'm doing what Tim does to me. Oh, boy. What is the main reason, given in verse 4, that Jesus is superior to the angels? He's the radiance of the glory of God? That's verse 3. Oh, where did you... What verse? Verse here? 4. In verse 4? He's superior to the angels because he has something that they don't. He's inherited... The name? Yes. He has inherited a better name. Mm -hmm. And so what is this talking about? Like Jesus is a better name than Michael or Gabriel? No. Uh, What it's referring to here is not his specific personal name, but more so the title the position that he holds. And that's going to be reiterated in both of the quotations. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to couple these two quotes together to clearly demonstrate what that title is. So, quote number one in verse five, great introductory statement here, by the way, as he leads into the verse. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, so has God ever said this to an angel? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So, really easy interpretation for us. Has God ever said that to an angel? No. No! <laughs> This is this feels like when Tim is talking through the Song of Songs and he's 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 like lobbing up really simple questions to me. And I'm like, no, you're right. Yeah, so no. So why is Jesus superior to the angels? It's the position that he holds. And he is going to develop this into chapter two that his incarnation does not undermine that position. It actually gloriously reveals it as he lives a perfect life. Substitutes on the cross for all of mankind, and then is raised from the dead. Uh, and all of that is part of the exaltation of the Son. And so um, let's look at Psalm 2. This is where this quote first quotation comes from. So the in Hebrews 4, excuse me, Hebrews 1, the you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is Psalm 2. Did I say Psalm 4? Yeah, Psalm 2. So let's, uh, let's go look at Psalm 2. And so, uh, what is going on in Psalm 2?
1: Lots of fun stuff. I love Psalm 2.
0: So Psalm 2 is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And uh, w- what's going on here? So let's just read it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the first three verses, it's the nations. And they're looking at the rule of God, the Lord, and they're saying, let's be done with
1: this. Yeah, they don't want to submit to God's dominion, his kingdom.
0: And of particular note, in verse 2, it's not just the Lord that is being uh, rebelled against. The Lord and his Messiah is the specific word there. If you were a good Christian in the era that Hebrews is being written, and you're reading your Old Testament Septuagint, you would read that verse and you would read the Lord's Christos. His anointed one. Right. Most people that are quoting this in the New Testament are saying that this is being written of Jesus. This has some hermeneutical issues to it. Is it being written about a literal Hebrew king, David, or one of those lines? Uh, or is it only prophetically speaking to Christ? We're not going to get into that. Just realize he is... Pulling this context of Psalm 2, he knows here are the nations rebelling against Christ. And uh, as the nations are rebelling against God's anointed king, what does God do? (laughs) Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's like, you you can do whatever you want to do, but you're not going to escape this rule. And uh, to state it in another way that the New Testament puts it, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that... Jesus is the anointed one. And that's where our quotation comes in. Verse 7. So the nations are raging against the rule of God. God laughs and says, My anointed one is going to rule whether you like it or not. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There is a lot of discussion about how this quotation here then gets applied in New Testament context, specifically with the I have begotten phrase. And uh, again, we're not going to get into that part of it. The clear allusion or the idea of the writer of Hebrews is that Christ, Jesus, is clearly being coupled to the idea of the the ruling anointed son. And if you finish the psalm, he comes up again. So, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me, so son, ask the Lord, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the rule of the son is going to be complete and dominant. Now, therefore, O king, so he turns back to the ones at the beginning who didn't want to have the rule of the anointed. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So, a very strong plea in Psalm 2 to the universal, complete control of God's anointed. Here is the author of Hebrews recognizing these Jewish Christians wanting, being tempted to turn away from the messianic king. Granted, we do not see him now with all enemies subject to his feet but he will be that king. And that's what the author of Hebrews is reminding them. Why would you be tempted to think Jesus isn't that king just because he's incarnate, which makes him seem lower than the angels? Has God ever looked at one of those angels and said, you are my son? No, he has not. Uh, The poem is well-crafted. The four stanzas with each three verses demonstrate clearly the rule of the king, the son. And uh, a great commentary you could read more about the psalm is Alan Ross, a commentary on Psalms 1 through 89. Um, Another great quote here, where is it? Uh, This is from Kent. Uh, Jesus, as the son has a relationship far, far superior to that enjoyed by any individual angel. A couple other passages I would encourage you to read. Acts chapter 4 from verse 23 on, and then Acts chapter 13 starting in verse 33. Both of those are discussions of the early apostles in the early church encountering suffering, and what is the clear message? Jesus is better and we should serve him. And wouldn't you know, in both of those passages, they also quote directly from Psalm 2 to make their point. And so this is a big deal. This Psalm is a big deal for the New Testament church. It comes up in multiple places. It's also going to come up in Hebrews chapter 5, but we'll get there at some point. So let me just see. Because I want to know, oh, we're doing so great on time, Tim. We have so much time. We should just have a commercial break. <laughs> anyway, okay, so that's the first passage. Do, do you think we covered everything we should cover there? Yeah,
1: I think that's good. I mean, you went through a fair amount of Psalm 2 there. And so yeah. that's a, a great reminder and illustrates the coming Messiah, messianic kingdom. Yes. So good stuff.
0: And so... What the author of Hebrews has just done is he, in a succinct way, he said, guess what? Jesus is better than the angels because he is the anointed son and he will rule. That idea of rule along with his position is going to come up in the second quotation. And the second quotation is another very famous Old Testament passage that's actually quite key to dispensationalism which is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, this one is a little bit harder to capture without reading it, but we're going to try to. So what's happening here? Uh, Verse 1, 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, David, historical David, is the king. And it says, Now when the king, referring to David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, The king said to Nathan the prophet, and if you remember Nathan, he's the one that confronted David when he had committed his sin with Bathsheba. So David is at rest. He's in his home, and he says to Nathan the prophet, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent, the tabernacle. So David has this sentiment that if I live in a nice house, so, should the presence of God. Let's build a temple. That's the idea here. And, you know, that doesn't really seem off to any of us. Like, okay, great, let's build a house. That night, the Lord comes to Nathan in a dream. And he says, okay, I have some instructions for you to give to David. And more or less, he says, you know, have I ever asked for this? No. But really, uh, what becomes important is that the Lord sort of flips it. And uh, I can still I can hear Dr. Myron saying this. Mm-hmm. You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. That's what the Lord says, is that he is going to make a house for David. And so this is in verse 11. Or we'll read verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So he tells Nathan, I want to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord comes to Nathan in a dream and says, no, no, no. Tell David I'm going to make him a house. Well, what are we talking about here? Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, when David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. Now it gets a little tricky. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Ooh, that's a diff that's a difficult verse to interpret there. We might come back to it later. So it is verse 14 that the writer of Hebrews quotes, applying it to Christ. So if you go back to Hebrews, to which of the angels did God ever say, Psalm 2:7? you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What is the author of Hebrews connecting here? Well, clearly the catchword is son. Both of these passages are referring to a future ruler of Israel. One of them is very specific that that ruler must be of the line of David and that his throne will last eternally. And for both of these quotes, uh, God is his father. He is the son. And very clearly, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is that guy. <laughs> so do you remember 2 Samuel 7, where God promised an eternal ruler to come after David? David. And the believing Hebrew would say, Oh, of course I do. Which, by the way, when Matthew undertook a gospel to the Israelites, what did he think so important to point out in Matthew chapter 1? That Jesus was a physical descendant of who? David. David. Why is that meaningful? Well, the promised king had to be a Davidic ruler. And part of dispensationalism, we think God will literally fulfill his promises. So we expect there to be a literal Davidic king that rules eternally. Uh, And as a part of that, physically on earth, Uh, which Jesus has never done that. We would think that he would someday fulfill that. What the author of Hebrews is saying, why is Jesus better than the angels? Well, he's the son. He's The Psalm 2.7 son who you should kiss and yield to because he's the ruler. And he is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7.14. He is the one of David's seed who is going to rule forever. Jesus is that guy. And so it's such a beautiful coupling of the Old Testament passages to help a struggling Christian Why should I be a Christian? Because Jesus is that ruler. He is the promised Messiah. And uh, what's so beautiful about that is that that is not only for Jewish people. Uh, Psalm 2 was very clear. All the rest of the nations should understand who this guy is too. And so uh, that's the point that the, uh, the author of Hebrew is, is making here. He couples the Messianic Psalm 2 with the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel to remind us that the baby boy is the Messiah. Now, I mentioned this earlier that we're going to come back to this. Yesterday in church, I sang these lyrics. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That is a 1700s hymn by Charles Wesley titled, Hark the Herald Sings. Hark the Herald Angel Sings. Uh, I have here the original lyrics from what I believe is 1739. This is where I asked you earlier if you knew what the old English word for welkin or velkin is. Uh, And Tim did not know what that was. It's talking about the heavens. Uh, but here, here is uh these lyrics. And I just thought, here's a great Christmas ending to a great Jesus messianic uh podcast. So let's, you know, what what do the angels themselves uh say regarding this boy? Hark how all the Velcan rings, all the heavenly beings sing. Glory to the King of Kings. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. That is Psalm 2. Uh, join the triumph of the skies. You know, the angels are, are not superior to the sky. They rejoice and worship this guy. Which, by the way, that's the next couple quotations in Hebrews. We try not to get ahead of ourselves. Join the triumph of the skies. Universal nature say Christ the Lord is born today. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men, I appear. Jesus, our Emmanuel here. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Come! Desire of nations come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise thy woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature now restore. Now in mystic union join. Thine to ours and ours to thine. This is the last verse. Adam's likeness, Lord efface. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain, thee, thy life, the inner man. O oh, to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. So, a beautiful, beautiful reminder that Jesus is that guy. Any closing thoughts?
1: It's just a great reminder, especially this time of year, who Jesus is, and that he is the Son, the Son of God, exalted above the angels. And as powerful as angels may seem to be, the Son is more powerful still. Hmm. And he has brought reconciliation to us with the Father. Praise be the Lord.
0: Thank you guys for listening. And, uh, Keep writing in to us. We love uh, interacting with you and uh, hope you enjoy the next couple weeks of Christmas fun and podcasts and we will see you next week on the Thinklings podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.